Um, all right, how's the reading going? School's, school's deep vacation. School's deep vacation, yes. Um, well, I hope your souls are having fair seat time. Um, was that an eye roll? <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Um, so we're going to get back to the intimations of today. Um, but before that, I wanted to read you a little Blake, or actually a little bit about what Blake had to say about Wordsworth, which is interesting. So in a contemporary of, of a very long-lived contemporary of a lot of the um, figures that we study at the time was a lawyer whose name was Henry Crabb Robinson. And do you know him? I, I've seen him referenced uh, when I was looking through the text. Yeah. He comes up a lot. Yeah. So he kept a diary. He met everyone. And he wrote letters to everyone and kept a diary of his meetings with people. And he's, he's a wonderful writer, and the diary itself is really wonderful, and um, his letters are wonderful. So this is from, um, there are a couple things I want to read to you. So this is from his diary and um, his discussion um, of various meetings that he had with Blake. He thought Blake was a really interesting painter and a poet. And in fact, he seems to have given Wordsworth some of Blake's poetry uh, in, that is as uh, written out. So that Wordsworth read some Blake partly because Robinson knew them both and um, told Blake that he would uh, that he bring Wordsworth to meet him at some point, but I don't think that meeting, I mean, as far as we know, that meeting never happened. Um, so he says of Blake, this is in the middle of his diary. Um, I'm just wondering where to start. Um, yeah, okay, we could just start here because it's interesting, but like he seemed not unwilling to admit the Manichaean doctrine of two principles as far as it is found in the idea of the devil. And so, you know, the Manichaeanism is the, it's what Star Wars is based on. They're, there's the dark side and the bright oh, side. Oh, you taught us that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Manichaean view is not that God is omnipotent, but that God is the greatest force for good, but there's also a very great force for evil, and that they're locked um, in eternal or at least very long-term conflict. So Blake seemed not unwilling to admit the Manichaean doctrine of two principles as far as it's found in the idea of the devil and said expressly he did not believe in the omnipotence of God. The language of the Bible, this is Blake, is only, this is Robinson summarizing Blake, is only poetical or allegorical on the subject, yet he at the same time denied the reality of the natural world. Satan's empire is the empire of nothing. So this is um, Robinson summarizing what Blake said to him as they had their tea. Um, this, is what, this is Robinson summarizing what Blake said to him about Wordsworth. No, this is, th that's what we're about to get to. So far, okay. this is just Blake's own view. Okay. So Robinson is, finds Blake fascinating and is writing down what Blake thought, um, which is that the language of the Bible is only poetical or allegorical, 
Um, but there's no reality in the natural world, and Satan's empire is the empire of nothing. This would be the bad Satan, not the paradise lost Satan. As he spoke of frequently seeing Milton, as one does if one's Blake, as he spoke of frequently seeing Milton, um, in another place, uh, Blake talks about, um, after, well after Voltaire's death, he talks about his debates with Voltaire. And Robinson said, what language did you speak to him in? And he said, he spoke English. <laughs> we spoke English in our debates. Voltaire is dead, and Blake is debating with him. Um, as he spoke of frequently seeing Milton, I ventured to ask, half ashamed at the time, which of the three or four portraits in Hollis's memoirs, in volumes in quarto, is the most like? So what did Milton really look like? He answered, they are all like at different ages. I have seen him as a youth and as an old man with a long flowing beard. He came lately as an old man. He said he came to ask a favor of me. He said he had committed an error in his paradise loss, which he wanted me to correct in a poem or picture. But I declined. I said I had my own duties to perform. So, um, <laughs> bizarre that that exists. Yeah. So, it is a presumptuous question, I, Robinson replied. Um, might I venture to ask what that could be? That is, what are your own duties? And, uh, or sorry, what is it that Milton wanted? And Blake said, oh, he wished me to expose the falsehood of his doctrine taught in the, par in the Paradise Lost that sexual intercourse arose out of the fall. Now that cannot be, for no good can spring out of evil. So in fact, Paradise Lost doesn't say sexual intercourse occurred after the fall. Um, but it might be that a certain kind of sexual intercourse occurred after the fall. And Blake said, you know, it's just, if you think it occurred after the fall, that's just wrong. But I replied, if the consequences were evil, mixed with good, then the good might be ascribed to the common cause. Um, to this he answered by a reference to the androgynous state in which I could not possibly follow him. At the time that he asserted his own possession of this gift of vision, he did not boast of it as peculiar to himself. All men might have it if they would. So, um, now how much Robinson is, how much Blake is messing with Robinson isn't clear, but they were clearly, they liked each other. <coughs> then um, Robinson goes on, this is, they're meeting in 1826, so Blake is about, um, is pushing 60. Um, sorry, he's pushing 70. Um, so Robinson then says, on the 24th, I called a second time on him, and on this occasion it was that I read to him Wordsworth's ode on the supposed pre-existent state, and the subject of Wordsworth's religious character was discussed when we met on the 18th of February and the 12th of May. I will here bring together Blake's declarations concerning Wordsworth and um, set down some of what he wrote in his marginalia. I'd been in the habit when reading this marvelous ode to friends, so he's reading the intimations ode, he loves the intimations ode, Robinson does, and he says, I've been the habit, in the habit when reading this marvelous ode to friends to omit one or two passages, especially that beginning, but there's a tree of many one. So you remember that one? Mm -hmm. A single field which I've looked upon, both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat, whither is fled the visionary gleam, where is it now the glory of the dream? So Robinson says that when he read this ode to friends, he would omit one or two passages, 
especially that beginning, but there's a tree of many one, lest I should be rendered ridiculous, being unable to explain precisely what I admired. So he loves this moment, but he's unable to say why, so he skips this when he reads it aloud. Not that I acknowledge this to be a fair test, that is, that you have to explain what you were admiring, but with Blake, I could fear nothing of the kind, so he doesn't omit reading that stanza to Blake. And it was this very stanza which threw him almost into a hysterical rapture. His delight in Wordsworth's poetry was intense. Nor did it seem less, notwithstanding the reproaches he continually cast on Wordsworth for his imputed worship of nature, which in the mind of Blake constituted atheism. So Blake thought Wordsworth worshipped nature too much, which Blake thought was a form of atheism. Um, and then he goes on to talk about um, what Blake thought of Wordsworth's supposed atheism. The combination of the warmest praise with imputations which from another would assume the most serious character and the liberty he took to interpret as he pleased rendered it as difficult to be offended as to reason with him. So he praises Wordsworth very warmly, but he also calls Wordsworth an atheist, which is quite the insult at the time. Um, and it's a surprise that he would combine these two things, but you can't be offended because it's Blake. The eloquent descriptions of nature in Wordsworth's poems were conclusive proofs of atheism. For whoever believes in nature, said Blake, disbelieves in God. For nature is the work of the devil. On my obtaining from him, see, I really feel like the Trump administration should be quoting this. They would get a lot of cred with people who otherwise give them no cred at all. On my obtaining from him the declaration that the Bible was the word of God, I referred to the commencement of Genesis. So Blake says the Bible is the word of God, so I referred to the commencement of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I gained nothing by this. So Robinson is saying, look, God says he created, Genesis says God created nature. But I gained nothing by this, for I was triumphantly told that this God was not Jehovah, but the Elohim. And the doctrine of the Gnostics repeated with sufficient consistency to silence one so unlearned as myself. Um, so because um, Robinson didn't understand um, that, not, that the Gnostic um, um, Mystic, mysticism, which says that the created world was not actually created by, by, by the true God, but by an imposter God. Um, that's what Genesis is really about. And Blake is saying that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. but that is Gnostic doctrine. So okay. Gnostic doctrine is that the world was created by a kind of platonic God who who couldn't, who was imitating the truth, which was um, transcended, transcended anything that was material or natural, and that human beings, unlike that God, have a spark of the truth, um, which comes from the what, the, what the greatest of Gnostic thinkers, Valentinus, calls the forefathering abyss. So there's a good book on like Gnosticism uh, written by Professor Quinney, who was here a couple of weeks ago. 
So you should, if you're curious about it, she has a lot to say about that. Yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a question that sort of refers to what we talked about a few weeks ago mm-hmm. on like an energy. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound weird, but I was in a graveyard yesterday okay. with some friends. And that's when I realized, well, I think I realized what he meant by energy. Okay. And well, like the principle of, you know, in physics, when uh, how energy is always. I just learned about energy today in chem, so. <laughs> yeah, like how. Tell me. Yeah, like the. How energy never dies. Yeah, yeah. Conservation, always, of yeah, conservation of energy. Yeah, conservation of energy. And it's like. Yeah. Human beings, we are energy. Mm-hmm. In a way. And it's like death is only the beginning of yeah. our lives. Yeah. Because it's like, well, with Blake, for example, we're reading him now, mm-hmm. and we're studying him, and he's known all over the world. Yeah. So it's like he's alive. Yeah. It's like his energy has become, like, humongous, and he's, like, influencing cultures and, and generations. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's like, the lives we live right now are not important, mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Because it's like, with our deaths, only will our real lives start. Or some real lives will start. Yeah, some real lives will yeah. start. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that in Blake. And it's, and it's knowing that that will happen, or feeling that that will happen, mm-hmm. which also validates the current moment. Okay, good. So, on my obtaining from him the declaration of the Bible is the word of God, he said this wasn't Jehovah, but the Elohim and the doctrine of the Gnostics repeated with sufficient consistency to silence one so unlearned as myself. Then, the preface to the excursion, especially the verses quoted from Book One of the Recluse, that is Home at Grasmere, which is what we looked at last week, so troubled him. This is just so hilarious. The preface of the excursion, especially the verses quoted from book one of the recluse, so troubled him as to bring on a fit of illness. <laughs> so he was reading words earth and it made him sick. These lines, <laughs> these lines he singled out. Jehovah with his thunder and the choir of shouting angels and the imperial throne, I passed them on alarm. And Robinson says, he gave me a copy of these lines in his hand. Um, So he actually was so angered by this that he wrote them out for Robinson to talk about why he didn't like those lines. So what did Blake say? He said, does Mr. Wordsworth think he can surpass Jehovah? (laughs) Um, And then he writes a note. Solomon, Solomon, when he married Pharaoh's daughter and became a convert to the heathen mythology, talked, talked exactly in this way of Jehovah as a very inferior object of man's contemplations. He also passed him unalarmed and was permitted. Jehovah dropped a tear and followed him by a spirit into the abstract void. It is called the divine mercy. Sarah dwells in it, but mercy does not dwell in him. That is, in... Um, Wordsworth. Some of Wordsworth's poems he maintained were from the Holy Ghost, others from the devil. <coughs> I lent him the two volume, my two volumes of Wordsworth's poems, which he had in his possession at the time of his death. They were sent me then, that is, he got them back. Um, and Blake had written notes in them, which Robinson was about to 
a race when he realized there were Blake's notes, so he kept them, and you can now find those notes. Um, and then um, Blake... I just imagine he gets his words right back, and then there's the person, like, shooting down the page. Right. It's like, thanks, Blake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I don't know if it was that edition or not. But, <laughs> but should I erase that? Oh, God, it's Blake. And he says, what he wrote, one of the notes he wrote, Robinson quotes, I see in Wordsworth the natural man rising up against a spiritual man continually. And then he is no poet, but a heathen philosopher at enmity against all true poetry or inspiration. And he writes, under my heart leaps up, which we looked at on Monday, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety, Blake had written, there is no such thing as natural piety because the natural man is at enmity with God. Um, but then he likes another bit of Wordsworth's poetry of which he writes, this is all in the highest degree imaginative and equal to any poet, but not superior. I cannot think that real poets have any competition. None are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is so in poetry. Um, so there's a lot more. This is you can you can get this actually free from Google Books. Um, you can get the Robinson's reminiscences, which are just great. Um, but I also wanted to read you. Um, it's going to take me a second. I think. I think this will be it. No, let me just see where it is. Um, this might be it. No, maybe I'm going the wrong way. Um, um, yeah, um, no, that part I read you, maybe it's here. Yeah, so he writes a letter to, to Dorothy Wordsworth. Um, this is the same year, 1826. Um, this is Robinson writing a letter to Dorothy Wordsworth again and talking to her um, about Blake. And um, so in the letter to Dorothy Wordsworth, um, what he writes... Um, is this where I want to start? Um... No. I just, I don't want to read you too much of it. Um, this is actually kind of interesting, though. There, um, part of the question here is, so Wordsworth had published his poems in two volumes, and part of the question here is what order the poems should be in. And um, Wordsworth did not publish them in the order that he wrote them. And um, there's, they, they, they have a conversation about whether that's right or not. I guess I'm just going to skip that. I'm sorry. Um, it's interesting, but... Here is um, talking about the order of poems. He... Um, 
worries that Wordsworth, because he's not putting them in the order that he's writ- that he's written them, some of Wordsworth's garbage later poems, and he says this outright to Dorothy, um, some of his garbage later right-wing poems um, are appearing under the same category as some of his great early poems. So that their poems dedicate to li- dedicated to liberty um, is one of the categories of Wordsworth's po- poetry that he publishes in his volumes, Poems Dedicated to Liberty. And what Robinson doesn't like is that there's some poems where liberty is, we would now call it neoliberalism, and some poems where liberty is actually radical politics. And Wordsworth lumps them all in together. And then he says to Dorothy, just think how gutsy this is to write to Dorothy's, Dorothy Wordsworth. I, sure, I assure you it gives me real pain when I think that some future commentator may possibly hereafter write, this great poet survived to the fifth decanery of the 19th century, which is true, he did. He, sur- he survived to the fifth decade of the 19th century. Um, he died in 1850. So Robinson is writing this 25 years earlier. Um, it gives me real pain when I think that some future commentator may possibly hereafter write, this great poet survived to the fifth decanery, the fifth decade of the 19th century, but he appears to have died in the year 1814, as far as life consisted in an active sympathy with the temporary welfare of his fellow creatures. So that's a pretty amazing thing to say. How did they all make the same metaphor? That he died? Yeah. <laughs> they, they all have knowledge of each other's <laughs> yeah but I think it's <laughs> they did but I also think that it's um, the question of, of poets dying young was a big one then because they also all make prophecies yeah it's true they do crazy. yeah um, or it just might be my own selection bias that those, those are the things I'm quoting for you and that there are actually three of them who do it and um, rather than all. But it is pretty amazing that Robinson is worried that someone is going to say, he appears to have died in the year 1814. What um, Harold Bloom says is, um, so Shelley's, for my money, in some moods, um, the greatest poem ever written in English is Percy Bysshe Shelley's Triumph of Life. And it's an incomplete poem because Shelley died um, in the middle of a line. He went out sailing and didn't come back. But it's an astonishing poem. He, he, like, that's how he died? Yeah, sailing. Oh, he drowned. God, he drowned. So beautiful. Like how he finished. So he didn't finish his poem, then he drowned. Yeah. It's beautiful. At the age of 29. Yeah, but drowning is a really bad way to die. <laughs> I know, but no, it's like poetic. Okay, I'm romanticizing. Well, Shelley, Shelley famously couldn't swim. Oh, and, no. and um, I mean, most people couldn't I swim at the time. Swim. I know you used to have to be able to swim to graduate. I really Yeah, because of the Titanic and Widener. But Shelley couldn't swim, and there was a time. This is this is uh, an anecdote about him that he fell into um, a pool of water and sunk like a stone, which it's not easy to do, um, but he did. He sunk like a stone, and Byron, who could swim, saved him. And Byron was a famously good swimmer. He's, uh, he did the same swim that um, um, a, a, across the Hellespont 
um, and wrote a poem about it. Um, Didn't Browning try to do that? And oh, did he try to swim across the elephant? Like, like Leander? I just some sort of like, yeah, and then some fishermen like pulled him out and he like just sort of like deciding Agamemnon to them or something. <laughs> it like, sounds like Browning. <laughs> Um, Sorry, just yeah, okay, so why do they all do that? Damn it. Um, but there's a, there's a famous medieval story about, or ancient story about Hero and Leander and how Le- Hero was like Rapunzel. She was locked up in a tower, but Leander, her lover, would swim across the Hellespont, which is the channel that divides in, in Turkey now, in um, Istanbul, which divides Europe from Asia. And it's a hard swim, but Byron did it, and... Um, so did a friend of his. And um, all we know about this guy is because Byron mentions him, he said, as Mr. Akenside and I did. Um, and uh, he said the result of it was that uh, Leander drowned and he, Byron, caught a cold. Um, but Byron was, was really proud of what a good swimmer he was. Shelley couldn't swim at all. And in a poem of Shelley's which recounts a conversation between him and Byron, and this, again, is a moment of prophecy. Um, the Byron character says to the Shelley character, who's a, um, a very, an extreme atheist, the Byron character says to the Shelley character, beware of providence, those who cannot swim. So that is a warning to the Shelley character, who then drowned um, three years later. He was three years later. And the, it was almost exactly three years later, so Shelley did fall into this pool of water, and he was rescued, I believe, by Byron, but I'm not sure, sure about that. It might have been Trelawney. And he complained when he was pulled out, and he said, another minute and I would have known the secrets of the other world. So, he may, so drowning may be unpleasant, but Shelley didn't seem to mind. Wow. Um, he drowned with the husband of... The, the, of, of the woman he was um, seeing at the time. They were friends, they all practiced free love, and um, it was an interesting life they led. At any rate, they drowned, and um, whereas Wordsworth lived to 80. Um, but in The Triumph of Life, Shelley tells a story. It's it's a kind of Dantesque poem. Um, are you? Di- no, you're not in the class. Is anyone in the Dante class? I just held a poetry a couple of years ago. Yeah. So did you do the Triumph of Life in it? Um, I think at the end, but it was just like one class. Yeah. Um, so the the great critic Paul Demon, who you may or may not have heard of, who was one of the two founders of the school called Deconstruction, taught a class which a friend of mine took, which was on Hardy and Yeats. It was a graduate seminar on Hardy and Yeats. And he wanted, he pulled him on, wanted to give them a little bit of background for Hardy and Yeats. So he started with Shelley's The Triumph of Life. The class was 13 weeks long, as classes are. And um, the first 11 and a half weeks were on The Triumph of Life. Then they were ready to spend a class and a half. There were two. They were seminars and then once a week, a class and a half on Hardy and Yeats. Um, so, so the Triumph of Life will a, a day on it won't be enough. Um, but what happens in the Triumph of Life is it's a Dante-esque poem, in which 
Shelley, the narrator, um, meets a guide, much as Dante meets Virgil. Shelley meets a guide who's Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, as Virgil has died before Dante is born, Rousseau has died before Shelley was born. But he meets him as a guide. And um, Rousseau sounds an awful lot like Wordsworth. And Harold Bloom's comment on this, on why Shelley has Rousseau guiding him, is that Wordsworth was, technically speaking, still alive. So I, that won't be independent. He'll be thinking of Crab Robinson when he says that. So Robinson says, I assure you it gives me real pain. I just love this so much. I assure, it gives you, it, I assure you it gives me real pain when I think that some future commentator may possibly hereafter write, the great poet survived to the fifth decanery of the 19th century, but he appears to have died in the year 1814 as far as life consisted in an active sympathy with the temporary welfare of his fellow creatures. So does anyone know historically the major thing that happened in 1814? Um, isn't it the war? Which war? War of 1812. That was maybe. That was, no, I forget what year that was, but pretty, pretty sure it wasn't 1814. Yeah, which one? What happens in 1814 that's so important? They go, did they fight Russia? No, that was 1812. Waterloo. Waterloo. So what's Waterloo? Napoleon gets defeated. Yeah, it's the final defeat of Napoleon. So, so the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, Napoleon is defeated before, but he comes back into power, and then he's finally defeated by the British at Waterloo in 1814. Um, the great novel of the War of 1812, does anyone know? War and Peace. War and Peace. The not as great, but still great novel, um, which has a major climactic scene of Waterloo, Vanity Fair. Really, really wonderful novel, hilarious novel, wonderful novel, uh, with climactic scene as Waterloo. The great French novel that begins pretty much with Waterloo, not quite, but um, pretty much, The Charterhouse of Parma. So if you ever run out of poetry and you have to sink to the lesser um, <laughs> genre of the novel, those are three novels that won't let you down too terribly. So, um, Robinson goes on. He seems to have died in the year 1814, as far as life consisted in an active sympathy with the temporary, well temporary welfare of his fellow creatures, which is a great line. The idea is we all die, but we still want our fellow creatures to have welfare while they're alive. Um, you all die, but um, the Affordable Care Act might be a good thing anyhow. Just saying. He had written heroically and divinely against the tyranny of Napoleon, but was quite indifferent to all the successive tyrannies which disgraced the succeeding times. So he'd written well against Napoleon, but didn't care after that. And then um, he goes on, I have mentioned Blake. This is to Dorothy Wordsworth. I forget whether I've referred before to this very interesting man with whom I am now become acquainted. Were the memorials in my hands, or I'm going to the next screenshot. Um, I should quote a fine passage in the sonnet of, on the sonnet on the Cologne Cathedral is applicable to con contemplation of the singular being. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess we can skip 
that. Oh yeah, let, now let me just go back. Um, he is not so, I do not mean to give you a detailed account of him. Remember this is a Dorothy Wordsworth. A few words will serve to inform you of what class he is. He is not so much a disciple of Jacob Beam in Swedenborg as a fellow visionary. He lives as they did in a world of his own, enjoying constant intercourse with the world of spirits. He receives visits from Shakespeare, Milton, Dante, Voltaire, etc., and has given me repeatedly their very words in their conversations. His paintings are copies of what he sees in his visions. His books and his manuscripts are immense in quantity, are dictations from the spirit. A man so favored, of course, has sources of wisdom and truth peculiar to himself. I will not pretend to give you an account of his religious and philosophical opinions. They are a strange compound of Christianity, Spinozism, and Platonism. I must confine myself to what he has said about your brother's works. That is what, he, what Blake says about Wordsworth. And I fear this may lead me far enough to fatigue you in following me. After what I have said, Mr. Wordsworth will not be flattered by knowing that Blake deems him the, quote, only poet of the age. So Wordsworth won't be flattered that Blake thinks that because Wordsworth will so disagree with Blake on stuff. But that Blake deems him the only poet of the age, nor will he be much alarmed by hearing that Blake thinks that he is often in his works an atheist. Now, according to Blake, atheism consists in worshiping the natural world which same natural world, properly speaking, is nothing real but a mere illusion produced by Satan. So that's a longer version of what I read you before from the diary. Milton was for a great part of his life an atheist and therefore has fatal errors in his paradise lost, which he has often begged Blake to confute. Dante, though now with God, lived and died an atheist. He was the slave of the world and time. But Dante and Wordsworth, in spite of their atheism, were inspired by the Holy Ghost. Indeed, all real poetry is the work of the Holy Ghost, and Wordsworth, Wordsworth's poems, a large proportion at least, are the work of divine inspiration. Unhappily, he is left by God to his own illusions, and then the atheism is apparent. I had the pleasure of reading to Blake in my best style, and you know how vain I am on that point, and think I read Wordsworth's poems peculiarly well. Uh -huh. I had the pleasure of reading to Blake the Ode on Immortality. I never witnessed greater delight in any listener, and in general, Blake loves the poems. What appears to have disturbed his mind, on the other hand, is the preface to the excursion. He told me six months ago, so this is more of what we saw before, that it caused him a stomach complaint which nearly killed him. So, and that's the good part. Jehovah is an angel as I pass him unalarmed. Um, but this is what Mary Shelley said, he's become a slave. It caused him a stomach complaint, which nearly killed him. When I first saw Blake he, at, at Mrs. Arter's, he very earnestly asked me, is Mr. Wordsworth a sincere, real Christian? In reply to my answer, he said, if so, what does he mean by the worlds to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil? And who is he that shall pass Jehovah unalarmed? It is since then that I've lent Blake all the works which he but imperfectly knew. I doubt whether what I've written will excite your and Mr. Wordsworth's curiosity, but there's something so delightful about the man, though in great poverty, he is so perfect a gentleman with such genuine dignity and independence, scorning presence and of such native delicacy in words, etc., etc., 
that I have not scrupled promising to bring him and Mr. Wordsworth together. He expresses thanks strongly, saying, You do me honor. Mr. Wordsworth is a great man. Besides, he may convince me I am wrong about him. I have been wrong before now, etc. Coleridge has visited Blake, and I am told talks finally about him. Okay, so I wanted um, you to hear that partly um, just to get a sense of where Blake thought the differences were between them, but also where Blake thought the similarities were between them. And I think it's the similarities that uh, Blake is... Well, he's probably right about the differences, too. Um, but these are similarities and differences that are intertwined with each other. And this could be an example of the, the maxim in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that opposition is true friendship. And also, you know, I thought you would want to know about the Milton portraits, how accurate they were, and when in Milton's life. It's, you know, it's useful to know. And also it's good to know that Dante's with God, that, that Blake knows that. All right, so back to the intimations of... Okay, so just to remind us of where we were on Monday, um, we looked at the first four stanzas, or in this edition, the first 57 lines of the Intimations Ode, which is where Wordsworth broke off. And then we looked at the opening of the Prelude, which also consists of a breaking off on Wordsworth's part. That is the structure of the prelude, as I, you, may, you probably noticed, but you may not, because it's kind of only mentioned once, um, but it is what's structuring the poem, is that Wordsworth is celebrating his freedom. He's left the populous city. He is able to sing again. He told, tells a prophecy to the fields and woods, he says, oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. He is feeling that he can now write. He's feeling empowered. He's feeling confident. He's feeling ready. And he produces 100 lines or so. And then he feels good. I'm in the swing of things. And like Milton, he remembers what he recites. So Milton in Paradise Lost, he describes this in Paradise Lost, and um, he also described it to his nephew who wrote the first biography of Milton. Milton would be up all night, and he would compose 20 to 40 lines of Paradise Lost every night, and then when his daughters woke up, he would recite what he composed. So he was up all night because for him, day and night, it didn't matter. Night was cooler. And then he would recite what he had composed in the, in the silence of the night. And his um, NMUMCs, that is those, his scribes would take down what he wrote. So Wordsworth is doing something similar here. He's walking, he's leaving the city. He is finally free. He composes spontaneously in his head. 
but he remembers, he memorizes as Milton did, or simply remembers, as Milton did, the lines that he composed, and then he sets them down. And he says, this is as far as I got, and then I decided that was great, I would rest, I would take a break, and then I tried again, but the harp was soon defrauded. That is, it turned out this is all I had. I thought this was what he calls a glad preamble later on to the song. Um, I was ready. This was the opening. I got going. But then I couldn't go any further, and I couldn't write. And then the prelude, and this is the structure of the prelude, is let me think about why that is. What happened that made it now impossible for me to write? Let me go over my life to figure out why I can't write. And so this is a poem about writer's block in which he tries to figure out why he has writer's block and by doing it he overcomes that writer's block because he's writing his analysis of writer's block. So I had a student once, I'm very proud of this story, I had a student once who was writing, uh, you should close your ears, she was writing a PhD thesis. That's okay. <laughs> I was just in pretending to. Yes, yeah, I figured that. And that's what happened. So I, I told the story really fast. And she would, she had terrible writer's block. She would come to my office every week and she would say, I just couldn't write, I have nothing. And I said, um, well, you know, you should um, figure out why this is happening. And so she started writing me incessant emails about what she couldn't write. And she said, you know, I want to say this about Milton and connect it to this about Milton and make this point, which is kind of looks like the opposite of this, but they're actually the same thing. And she did this for two years, writing me email, without writing a word of her dissertation, writing me emails about why she couldn't write her dissertation. And so after two years, I collected all the emails and I said, get rid of the subject headings and just clean up your prose a little bit and you're done. And she was. And she got her degree. So that's what I was proud of. Wow. And I figured, you know, I sort of figured that this was what I was going to do about a month into it. I realized that her emails were great. And I even told her, you know, you're writing an email. She said, yeah, but it's not a dissertation. But after two years, it was. And so she had her PhD, and it all ended halfway. And the, that's sort of what's happening with the prelude, which is that he is writing about not being able to write, and writing about not being able to write turns out to get him to write his greatest long poem. Therefore, on some ways of measuring, his greatest poem. I think line for line, the intimations ode, or maybe poem for poem, the intimations ode is the most important thing he wrote. But the prelude's amazing, and it is not unworthy of comparison with Paradise Lost. It's not Paradise Lost, but it's not unworthy of comparison with Paradise Lost. Yeah. <clears throat> like, do you think weeks yesterday was it yesterday? I forgot when it was Monday. Monday. When you said something about. Um, 
how like writing poetry is like from a place of trying to work through a crisis. Yes. Like a mental like. Crisis. Yes, exactly. So is it like? I guess like yeah, in popular culture wise, like the troubled genius uh -huh. is like a very popular trope in that the troubled genius is trying to write through his yeah. mental crisis. Right. Exactly. And it's very much a romantic trope. That is, you don't have troubled geniuses unable to write and who are really cool because of that before the Romantic era. So it's very much a romantic trope, and it's a way of saying that they're taking writing seriously. That is, that writing itself, they're having trouble writing because they want to dive deep into, into themselves. And that's a really hard thing to do, hence the trouble. And... Um, the therapy, to use too weak a word, the salvation offered by writing is that you can write, that writing is a kind of very, very intense thinking, or very, very intense thinking has to manifest itself as writing. You can put it either way. And that, that writing poetry, in a sense, is um, firing on all cylinders. That is that everything there there's there's no register of thought that isn't devoted to thinking about the issue of thinking. You could almost say the a word to trace in Wordsworth, a really great word to trace in Wordsworth, is any variation of the word think, like thought. Um, thought is a noun. Um, thought um, as a past tense, um, even a word like pansy, which means thought. That's one, one reason to point that out. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. So that it's thinking that makes him see a truth that the people celebrating this sweet May morning are somehow not seeing, but there's a tree of many one a single field that I have looked upon, and that's the that's the stanza that was so powerful for Blake. So it's thinking that is clarity about truth, but also that is troublesome. So both the Prelude and the Intimations Ode falter. They both are poems that begin with an attempt to cheer oneself back into optimism. To say, oh, there's blessing, this gentle breeze, and to become optimistic that way. And they're both poems that fail. What we looked at in the prelude, I'll just say this very quickly now, um, when Wordsworth says the harp, harp was soon defrauded, and the band of and the straggling um, and host of, of voices dispersed into utter silence. Then Wordsworth responds to that, and he says, okay, be it so, it is an injury to think of anything but present joy. So he's trying then to think himself into optimism without having to write. Be it so, he says. Um, he also says that he realized that he couldn't say anymore. This is the, the stuff we looked at at the very end of class on Monday when he says, um, 
my soul once again to make trial of her strength, my soul sought once again to make trial of her strength, and he tried to try to compose some more poetry. Both of those phrases are from Paradise Lost. In, and I think I'm the first person to notice this, in Book 9 of Paradise Lost, the argument to Book 9, remember the arguments are the summaries, we hear why it is that Eve goes, separates herself from Adam and uh, is therefore found alone by Satan who then enters into the body of the serpent and gets Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the argument to Book Nine of Paradise Lost says that Eve went out alone to make trial of her strength. That is, she was sure she could resist Satan. She knew she could. And in fact, she's right, she could. That is what God and Raphael have told her, that you don't have to worry that Satan will force you to sin because he won't. You have to simply resolve to be good and you have the power to do it. That's the power of free will. So Eve, in order to make trial of her strength, goes off alone and then Satan does seduce her and look at the woe that we are now experiencing, all our woe. So that phrase, when Wordsworth uses it, that he once again tried to make trial of his strength, by continuing his poem, that's a very odd echo of Eve's decision that leads to her disaster and leads to the fall. The phrase, be it so, is a really famous phrase, and you actually read it in Paradise Lost, because that's Satan. He says, is this the place this the region, this the clime that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light. And then his response to that question is, be it so, since he who now is king doth reign supreme, farthest from him is best. So that be it so moment in Paradise Lost, it's a moment of absolute sublimity. It's a moment where Satan does what Nietzsche says we should all do, which is to say, thus I willed it, to take what everything the world dishes out to us and affirm it. In Nietzsche, this is called amor fati, or love of fate. And it is to turn it was, that is, this is how things were, into thus I willed it. And that is what Satan is doing in Paradise Lost. So if this is what happened against all expectations, be it so. So it's an interesting and unexpected echo of Milton in at the moment of failure in the prelude. So the moment of failure is he can't write. That for him is equivalent to Satan finding himself in hell. It's not that Wordsworth is saying, oh, it's so hellish that I can't write. But it is Wordsworth saying that I've lost what I had. It's not that what I have now is hellish and I hate it. It's rather I had something and it's gone. And that's what happens at the end of stanza four of the intimations of it. Yeah. <clears throat> 
so I, I guess, yeah, I've been thinking in a big picture sense, like what we've been talking about the whole semester. Uh huh. Like with the songs of experience and the songs of innocence. Yeah. And it's like, um, he's trying to recapture this, the joy, mm -hmm. like the innocence. Mm -hmm. Key words were. Yeah. Yes. Before his fall. Right, right. And yeah, so. Is that basically like well, that's what he thinks he wants and what he fails to get. So that's on Monday. Um, I compared or contrasted this to Thel going back to the Veils of Har. So that in the Veils of Har, you outgrow them if you're Thel. And what causes you to outgrow them, remember what Thel means, Thelo in Greek? I want. It means desire. So, in Blake and in Thel, that also means sexual desire. That is, that the Songs of Innocence are, um, it, that would be the Eden that Blake thought Milton was mistaken about because there was no sexual intercourse there. And sexual intercourse for Blake is a good thing. So, sexual desire, I want, is Thel wants something beyond the innocence of innocence. But then she fears it. And she goes back there. And the desire to go back to childhood is a very tempting one for Blake and a very tempting one for Wordsworth. And what happens at the beginning of the Intimations Ode is that he wants to go back, but he can't. And the question is, what do you do with that? How do you love that fate that you can't go back to childhood? In the prelude, he goes back into a kind of autobiographical reminiscence of childhood, which is what most of the prelude is. And that autobiographical reminiscence is a way of dwelling on, if not dwelling in childhood anymore. But the question is, even if you could go back to childhood, you would go back to a situation where you got too old to be a child anymore. So even if you could repeat it, it would still end up in childhood being over. I, like, I guess I had this image of, I guess, what these men thought the meaning of life was. Yeah. Which is, so we come into this world with truths, but we have amnesia. Yeah, but he hasn't said that yet. Yeah, but listen, don't. <laughs> yes. So then you have, like, uh, your innocent childhood where you experience this beautiful joy. Uh -huh. But then that goes away with adulthood. Yeah. And it seems like so for the rest of your life it you should try to like recapture not the childhood but like the joy and like the, the philosophy of yes. being a child. Yes. And that's like the, the intimations. That is like your purpose. Yeah. In wow. Yeah. That's what Songs of Innocence and of Experience is also saying? Well, I would say no, but I, it, in one sense yes, in another no. Um, it's saying that you can't, you shouldn't do what Thel does, which is to treat childhood as a shelter from truth. That that is the mistake. Okay. And that instead what you should do is something like what Milton ends up doing in Blake's Milton.
which is seeing the truth of things and um, confiding yourself to the poetic genius. Uh, and you to yourself. Sorry? In other, like in contemporary poems, like confiding in your poetic <clears throat> genius is being true to yourself. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it also means being true to the truth. So it's not some version of what it would mean to return to childhood would, for example, be a kind of naive religious belief. That would not be right. But okay, let's get back to the intimation zone. So, as with the prelude, there's a moment of blockage, a moment where he can't go on. And then, in the fifth stanza, which he gets back to almost two years later, he gives you another account of childhood, which looks like it's completely consistent with the end of childhood he's giving you in stanza one. So let me just say this, that reading the poem this way and reading it with a two-year gap between stanza four and stanza five, that's not how we're meant to read it. The poem itself, when Wordsworth returns to it, it's because he's worked out a way to continue it. But for him, it'll be a single continuous poem, which is occurring on a single May day. So even though it takes him two years to write, he's writing about his I, his poetic self, thinking this through on a single day. And you can read it on a single day, so that's, that's right in some sense. But it's as though what he's thinking through he's thinking through two years later is when he restarts the day. And so, you know, just imagine that, okay, I'll reread the first four stanzas and then keep going today. And so our noticing that it took him two years to do that is a way of taking seriously how hard it was for him psychically to get beyond the end of stanza four and also that he has found a move that he could make which will get him out of the impasse at the end of stanza four. And the move that he's making is what you were describing, Tafara, which is the platonic doctrine of amnesia, which we talked about earlier in this class. Platonic doctrine of amnesia being that you forget when you're born, you forget what you knew before you were born when you were part of the platonic realm of forms. So people probably know that Plato thinks he's demonstrated this in the Mino, in the dialogue of the Mino. So the demonstration, I told you, I, yeah, we talked about Darwin and what Darwin wrote, yeah. So the demonstration of the Mino is that uh, Plato talks to a young, uh, excuse me, Socrates talks to a young boy um, who knows no geometry and no math, and he draws a square for the boy, and he says, okay, draw a square which has twice the area of this square, and so the boy draws, um, doubles the length and doubles the height of the original square because he's doubling it. And 
anyone who's taken middle school mathematics knows that that doesn't double the size of the square. It quadruples it. So, but the boy doesn't know that. So Socrates just asks him some questions, all of which the boy is able to answer. That's the Socratic method, is asking questions rather than saying things. So he asks the boy a bunch of questions, all of which the boy is able to answer, at the end of which the boy not only realizes that he's quadrupled the size of the original square, but what he would have to do to double the size rather than quadruple the size of the original square. Do you know how to double the size of a square? Yeah, it would actually be really hard because you'd have to multiply each side by square root of two. Yeah, but you don't need to know that. You can double it in a different way. You draw a square on the diagonal of the original square. So you draw the original square, and you draw a diagonal, and you make that the base of a new square. Oh, and that'll okay. be double the area. Yeah. So. Oh, right, because the diagonal would be square root of two. Square two. Yeah. yeah. So, so the boy figures this out just by being asked questions. And then Socrates points out that he never told the boy how to do it. He just asked him a bunch of questions. And the boy could answer those questions, so he had the knowledge. He had just didn't have a way to access that knowledge. To use Socrates' famous metaphor, he was like a hard disk without an index that he could access through um, his keyboard. What? It's a very famous metaphor in the next 2,500 years of Western engineering was attempting to get what Socrates said and make it make sense. So eventually it led to computers. Oh. Joke, joke, joke. That would be a contemporary <laughs> that would be a contemporary <laughs> metaphor. <coughs> that is that um, you know when you lose a file it's on your hard disk but you can't find it. That's because your access to it is gone. The way, your your way of um, finding it in the mess of all the crap on your hard disk is gone. Um, so Socrates says, we have it all in our heads. We're born knowing it. But our access to what we're born knowing is gone. But it's there. And so what you can do by asking the right questions is bring it up bit by bit and reconstruct the knowledge that you already had. But you're reconstructing knowledge that you have rather than getting new knowledge. So getting new knowledge is like finding out that there are no stickers on the bottom of my computer. You didn't know that. You couldn't do it by memory unless you've noticed the bottom of my computer before. Um, but you can do it by observing something in the world. But mathematical knowledge you can't get by observing things in the world because there are no perfect geometrical things in the world. They just don't exist. So how do we know the truths of geometry? We have to go deep into ourselves, which is where they are. Um, how did we? How did they get there? They must have gotten into our souls when we were in the realm of sheer ideas before we were born. So when we're born, we forget things. That's Plato's argument. You're not buying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's why Darwin said it's it comes to us through our genes. He didn't actually say through our genes, but through our inheritance. He didn't know about genes, but through our inheritance. Well, did Darwin know that he was in dialogue? Oh, yeah. No, he said, um, thus, no, that's what he wrote in his notebook. Thus, Plato's idea of pre existence is true. He wrote in his notebook. 
and then he said, except for pre-existence, read monkeys. That is, we learned what we did, we, we know what we know, because we're descended from primates who learned it through natural selection. So our inheritance is we, we know the experiences of our ancestors. That's the basic idea. Not the individual experiences, but the world experiences which they had to negotiate in order to survive for natural selection. So it's a great argument. Anyhow, Wordsworth does not know that. He knew Darwin's grandfather, but not Darwin. And he nevertheless is taking, as he put it in, in a conversation with someone later, he decided to go to the platonic story of preexistence to attempt to think and fight his way out of the impasse that he was in. So, Olivia, is it your turn to read? <laughs> Can be. Well, did we get... Did, yeah, I mean, I read last time. And, and you didn't read last time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is. Okay. <laughs> Thumbs up, right? Our birth. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Okay. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. Not entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God and with our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light, and once it flows, he sees it in his, in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still as nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of Thank you. So what word do you notice at the end? Common. Common. So we're back. So he's restarting the poem, rebooting it, to use Plato's term. Joke. <laughs> and um, he's going back to this idea of common. And so notice that what he's saying is the beginning of the poem is the earth in every common sight. Now everything is common. Now, again, in stanza five, it's, yeah, it's the light of common day. So he is -descri or describing again, not re-describing, which implies describing with a difference, although there is a difference. But he's, first of all, describing again the thing that got him writing the poem to begin with, the light of common day, not celestial light, but the light of common day. So our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. So that's platonic amnesia, right? Sorry, I have a question. Yeah. And the difference between the light of common day and celestial light is being, is like what he used to be versus what he is now. Yeah, so the world did seem apparelled in celestial light. All the common things seemed like they were glowing with a light from heaven. Mm -hmm. But now it's just ordinary, everyday um, daylight. Wallace Stevens has a great letter written towards the end of his life about how much he likes dawn um, before the sun rises and coarsens the day. So the idea would be it's just, yeah, you know, it's, it's the kind of light that it's nice when you're driving because you don't have to turn your headlights on, but it's just 
just light that shows you everyday objects. So the light of common day is everyday light. It's not hail holy light. It's um, uh, yeah. It's I don't have to turn my headlights on because there's enough light to drive by. Uh, you can see all the trash on the streets with this light. So it's not radiant. It's not transcendent. It's just the light of common day. So what's the difference then between our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting and the opening of the poem? They're consistent. It's not that they're inconsistent. But nevertheless, you should be feeling that there's a difference in the attitude towards childhood that the first line, that is line 58, the first line of the fifth stanza gives you, and that the opening stanza gives you. The opening stanza being the child is the father of the man? or the No, the, the there was a time, time. yeah. Okay, here's, yeah, thanks. Um, I wasn't going to say this, but, okay. but I can, I think. Um, there was a time is not a, not a specific uh-huh. time where birth is Good. a very specific Nice, reason. nice. And, um, yeah, I guess focusing on the birth is what can allow him to go to the next part. Okay, good. Um, what about dream versus sleep? So the end of, um, or line five of the first stanza, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. How do those go together? The last poem about the one who dies, I forgot the name. A slumber of my spirit seal? Yeah. yeah. Nice, yeah. Um, yeah, so good. There's an element of death. Yeah. Our birth is but a sleep, it's a slumber. Yeah, and but I guess like I like the the dreams because it's sort of you know how dreams can be surreal. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean I dream about, you know, brushing my teeth and yeah, go on. Yeah, like the dreams are like the afterlife. Uh-huh. But they're not Yeah. Okay, so but what is if you say that someone is asleep at the wheel or asleep on the job, um, what are you saying about them? Or why do we wake students up when they fall asleep in class? I actually don't, but many of my colleagues do. Yeah, but they're not paying attention, so and it's not. So, so they can see or understand. Yeah, but I'm not thinking. If so, if if someone falls asleep in class, you're not thinking. Oh man, they are having a marvelous experience of other worlds. This is so much more important than anything that can be going on in Waltham, Massachusetts. For all I know, they're talking to Milton or Voltaire. Oh, but maybe they are. Maybe they are, and yet it's never stopped. Yeah. (laughs) Is that why you never wake? No, I figure if they're asleep in class, they need to sleep. Yeah. One of my favorite teachers in college. It's also 
One of my favorite teachers in college didn't wake people up, and I love that about him, so I don't. Um, doesn't happen that often, at least. I mean, it does in lectures, but it doesn't happen that often in seminars. But he didn't wake up my friend Michael Kelly in a seminar. I thought that was just great. There were like, it was like seven of us, and Michael was just peacefully sleeping. And so our teacher, Jack Winkler, said, we have to speak very quietly. And we did for the next hour. I like that. Yeah. So um, sleep here means something like stupor. Means that if it's a sleep and a forgetting, it means you're not back in the other world. It means that you are closed to the other world, closed to the truth. That it's a sleep like a slumber did my spirit seal. You're absolutely right. That it's an unawareness of reality. And the more intense the reality, the deeper the unawareness of it is. So the glory and the freshness of a dream now becomes a sleep and a forgetting. Glory is obviously good, but a sleep and a forgetting that's not glorious, but Notice the word glory does appear in this stanza. Where? The glory of dreams. No, in, sorry, the fifth stanza. But trailing clouds of glory do we come? Yeah, so in the fifth stanza, one way to measure the difference from the first and the fifth stanza is in the first stanza, glory and dream go together. In the fifth stanza, sleep and glory are separated from each other. So... Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The clouds of glory come from heaven. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. So what's the metaphor there? The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. What's the metaphor Yeah, and what in our universe, what would that star be? The sun. So that's what some footnotes will tell you, and they're wrong. <laughs> okay. So this is one of those few cases where you can say that um, in particular, I don't know that the Norton Anthology still does this, but for many years the Norton Anthology just said the sun was its footnote. It's not the sun. Okay. And the way we know it's not the sun is for two reasons. One, it fades into the light of common day, which the sun does not. Oh, right. <laughs> since yeah. the sun is the source of the light of common day. And also because the soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting. It doesn't set in the same place that it rises, that is in the same world that it rises. It's set elsewhere to rise here. It's set in some other world to rise in this world. So this is one of those cases where you learn a little astronomy. I think we already talked about this a little bit. Um, we did. Venus. Venus, yeah. Uh, so yeah, remember, you drew it on the top. Yeah, so remember Venus, if it is the morning star, cannot be the evening star. So if you see Venus in the morning, you will not see it that evening. Do you remember that? 
as a fact, even if you don't remember why. Okay, so remember this as a fact. If you see, you will see Venus either in the morning or the evening. It will always be on the horizon. You'll never see Venus except during transits of Venus, which are not relevant here. You will never see Venus except near the horizon. It will either rise shortly before the sun does, or it will set shortly after the sun sets. So Venus is always within an hour or two of the sun in the arc of the sky. Never more than an hour or two before or after the sun. After the sun, in the evening, before the sun, in the morning. So what is Lucifer called in Isaiah? Do you remember famous phrase? How art thou fallen, O Lucifer? In the sky, in the thunder. Sorry? In lightning, in the sky. No, it's son of the morning. S-O-N of the morning. Lucifer is the son of the morning. The child of the morning. So that's Lucifer, the light-bearing star as morning star. So the idea here is that when you're a child, it's an amazing image, an amazing metaphor. When you're a child, your soul rises like the morning star, which is the most beautiful star in the sky. And your soul rises like the morning star. And that morning star doesn't come again at night. Right, <laughs> yes. It's not going to be there that night. No. Yeah, you got it. Okay, that's a good note to end the class with. So we'll pick this up on Monday. Um, if you can, read through book five of the Prelude. Um, why are you laughing? Because you have to it. It's a lot? It's not that much? Imagine if this... So how much have you read? So it's two more books. You have five days. It's 40% of a book per day. It's not so bad. Okay, but we will finish Intimation Zone, so if it happens that you don't read through book five, it probably isn't going to be that big a deal. Um, but try to read through book five so we can claim that we're keeping up. All right, and we'll pick up with stanza five of the Intimation Zone.